Hi, my name's Ryan Perry. I'm the pastor at Seneca Baptist Church, and we are so thankful that you're joining us in this online resource. Our prayer for you is that this resource would not replace your active involvement in a local body of Christ, but would rather be supplemental to it. If you are interested in getting further connected to the ministry of Seneca Baptist Church or to giving financially, please visit our website, SenecaBaptist.org. Thank you and enjoy. Wasn't that a, a great song to lead us into the Word of God this morning? Good gravy. Choir, thank you. Thank you so much. Luke chapter 24, verse 13. And uh, you're going to need your Bibles today. I think the scripture is going to be on the screen today, but there's not a, a sermon outline for you to follow along on. So we're just going to open the word, see what it says. That very day, we're in verse 13. That very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus. We don't know which two of those they are. About seven miles from Jerusalem. Verse 14. And they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. Verse 15. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. Now, just we'll come back to that in a minute. You might have questions about that. Verse 17, And he said to them, What is this conversation that you're holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still, looking sad. Then one of them, named Cleopas, that's one of the two, answered him, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened here in these days? I mean, have you been in a tomb or something? And he said to them, what things? Listen, if y'all tell me Jesus does not have a sense of humor, what, what, do you, what, what do you mean? What are you talking about? What things are you discussing? There have been things happening here in Jerusalem? Oh, really? Tell me about it. Well, verse 19, and as they said to him, or, and they said to him, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty indeed, and word before God and all the people. A prophet like Moses. A, a prophet who not only spoke God's words, but did God's miracles. A prophet like Elijah. And truly Jesus is the last and final greatest prophet. He is the better Moses. He is the one who knew God face to face. He is the greater Elijah. He is the one. Don't you remember in in, uh, uh, um, on the mountain of transfiguration where Jesus goes up the mountain with Peter, James, and John. He gets up the mountain and Moses and Elijah appear with Jesus. And Peter is befuddled. He doesn't know what to do. He, he says, oh, I know, I got it, I got it. I'm going to build three tabernacles. One for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. Isn't that good? Aren't you glad I'm going to do that for you guys? 
And this voice booms from heaven. This is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. Listen to him. When their eyes open, who's left standing there? Jesus and Jesus alone. He is the last and final prophet. He is the prophet like Moses. He is the prophet like Elijah, only greater. They were right about that. Verse 20, and, and how the chief priests and the rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped. Listen, listen to what creeps in right here. But we had hoped he was the one to redeem Israel. We had hoped. I want you to notice the disciples' doubt, the disciples' misunderstanding here. And, and besides all this, they say, it's now the third day since all these things happened. And we don't know what to do. It's been three days since all of these things took place and, and we're confused. Our hope is, is waning. We thought that He was the Messiah. Don't you remember a week ago when He came into town? He came into town riding on the donkey's colt and we sang, Hosanna, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. He's the King. But now we don't know what to do. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning. And when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had seen even a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Verse 24, some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as these women had said, but they did not, him they did not see. Here's what I want you to, to see in the disciples and then to see in you and me is when Jesus didn't meet their expectations of what they thought the Messiah ought to be, doubt came in. Doubt came in. When they misunderstood what Jesus had prophesied about himself that he would be crucified, that all of those things that they just talked about would take place. And then on the third day, he would raise from the dead. They doubted, they misunderstood what Jesus had said, and therefore doubt came in. Isn't it easy that when we don't think that God is keeping up his end of the bargain, we don't think that the Messiah, that Jesus is doing all that we think that he should do, isn't it funny how doubt kind of creeps in? And we begin to question God? We'd hoped. I don't know anymore. Have you ever felt that way? Has your faith ever seemed to kind of go off into oblivion? We, we had kind of hoped that he was, but I don't know. It's right where they were. Now, a lot of the times we give Thomas. Thomas is the doubter, right? I don't know. It seems as though Thomas was the only one that voiced it. But Peter went back to fishing, didn't he? The other disciples were in the boat with Peter, some of them. They doubted too. See, Cleopas, if this is Cleopas talking, Cleopas, he's at least voicing his doubt, but the rest of them just kind of lived it out. And I want you to understand today that sometimes when doubt creeps into our heart and we don't deal with the doubt, don't give Thomas a bad rap. Thomas was the only one that said, unless I see... See, the other ones, they had just internalized it. Doubt's not a bad thing as long as you doubt your doubt. Doubt's not a bad thing. 
Doubt can honestly be one of the gateways into a deeper relationship with the Lord if your doubt is dealt with rightly. Don't you remember? I can't, I think it's Luke chapter 9. There's a, a man who has a son, comes to Jesus, says, I, 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 brought, I brought my son, he's got demons, I brought him to your disciples, and they couldn't cast the demons out, so if you can, will you? And don't you remember what Jesus said? If I can, all things are possible for the one who believes. And the man says one of the most beautiful phrases that, uh, of, of, of a prayer to Jesus, an honest prayer, I do believe, help my unbelief. And if we're honest, aren't we all there sometimes? I do believe, help my unbelief. What a great prayer to pray. Can I just tell you this morning that if you have doubts, Jesus isn't afraid of your doubts. Isn't that good news? He is willing to meet you in the middle of your doubts. Just like he met Cleopas and whoever on the road of doubt here. We do that a lot. So, verse 25. He said to them, O foolish ones. Well, that, that doesn't sound like a very kind and compassionate way to start, does it? Oh, foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. That word slow of heart means dull, like a dull knife. Dull of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. I want you to see what Jesus does here. Jesus turns from a listener to a teacher. They don't know who Jesus is. Their eyes were kept from recognizing him. Yet Jesus rebukes them for their doubt. Oh, foolish ones and, and slow to believe. He rebukes them, he exhorts them, and he begins to teach them. He rebukes their unbelief, he exhorts their faith, and he teaches them based on the scriptures. This is what Jesus does. Listen, verse 27, and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Now, if you've got your Bible open, flip to verse 44, chapter 24, verse 44. Then he said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Verse 45, then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. Can you imagine that Bible study? Like, I want to be a part of that study. Which one? The one where I sit down with Jesus and he opens up the Old Testament and he says, this is every place where every... Every writer spoke of me. Wouldn't that be awesome? Gosh, that's what I want to be a part of. And what a model for teaching. He rebukes them. He exhorts them. He teaches them. All of it through God's Word. We ought to do the same thing. We ought to rebuke sin, exhort people to holiness and faith, and point people to Jesus. Rebuke, exhort, point to Jesus. Ryan, I just don't know. I just don't know if it's going to work today. 
Have you ever thought that? I just don't know if preaching the gospel will work today like it did yesterday. Or like it did last decade or last century or in the, the great revivals of such and such a time. I just don't know if the preaching of the word is as powerful as it was. I have a question. Has God's word changed? No. Has God changed? Has God become less powerful? Has his word become less poignant? No. You never know what God will do. I mean, think about these guys. They walked with Jesus for years, and none of them believed. All of them had it. were filled with doubt in these moments. Peter, James, John, they're back on the fishing boats by Sunday morning. That didn't take long, did it? We don't know, I guess. We'd hoped he was, but I guess not. So onward, got to eat tonight. Jesus isn't here to turn loaves and fishes, so we got to go catch us some dinner. They didn't get it. I didn't get it the first time. And if I can just be honest, I don't get it sometimes today. We, we sometimes look down our noses on the disciples at, oh my gosh, why, is, uh, why are the Israelites so hard-headed and so stubborn? Why are the disciples so full of unbelief? Why does Peter always stick his foot in his mouth? And it's like the Lord would say, Ryan, because he's a lot like you. Because I want to show you who you are. And I want to show you that my word applied to your life by my spirit can have the same effect as it did in the Bible days. The word of God is living and active, sharper than a double-edged sword. The word has not failed. God has not changed the gospel is still the power of God for salvation for everyone who believes. His promises are still true. Do you know, I don't know how I would make it if I didn't know His promises were true. How would I, how would I lay my head down on my pillow and rest well if I didn't know that the whole world was in His hands? That if I didn't know that Jesus loved me despite me. I don't know how I'd sleep. Do I get that every day? Nope. Do I sometimes try to live outside of those, that salvation and those promises? Yep. But rebuke. Exhort. Encourage. Teach people out of the Scriptures. Never teach people human truth. Your wisdom and my wisdom have no power to save a soul, but God's Word is able. His Gospel saves. Rebuke, encourage, exhort. You never know what it will do. Sometimes seeds lay under the ground, seemingly inactive for months and years at a time, but one day, one day, we've all seen it in our gardens this year, in our 
our flower beds this year, how that bulb that I planted last year in the winter has now brought forth this beautiful flower. I see that the, the pear tree in my yard that was bare just a few months ago now is blooming and blossoming and budding out pears. The Word of God does the same. Rebuke, exhort, teach people, point people to Jesus. You never know what it will do. See, in, it says in verse 16 that they were, their eyes were kept from recognizing Him, but that's not true forever. So that's what I want you to see, that Jesus opened their eyes. Look at verse 31. Well, let, let's look at verse 28. So they drew near to the village to which they were going. He acted as if he were going further. Again, Jesus in his sense of humor. He acted like he was going to keep going. Well, I guess I'll just meander down. Did Jesus know that he was staying with them that night? Yes. They begged him, please come stay with us. Okay. Jesus came in. Verse 30. When he was at the table with them, he took the bread and blessed it and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened and they recognized him. And he vanished from their sight. So there are a couple words that I want you to see. Verse uh, uh, 16, 15 it is. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. Verse 16, but their eyes were kept from recognizing them. I think the, the King James Version uses the word were holden from recognizing him. And it's literally the idea that he, their eyes, they were withheld the privilege of seeing Jesus. They were kept from seeing him. They were kept from grasping him. It was withheld from them. From beholding Jesus was withheld from them for that moment. That's all of our stories at a certain time. All of us at some point in time in our lives, our eyes were kept from seeing the glory of Jesus. But one day, by God's grace, in my life and maybe in your life, the scales fell from my eyes. And like Paul, I saw for the first time. They were kept from recognizing Him. They did not see Him for truly who He was. That word recognizing Him is epigenosko, and it means to fully comprehend or to fully be acquainted with Him. They only saw with their physical eyes, and at one point in time, you and I are just like that. We only saw with our physical eyes. But praise God, verse 31 comes along, and their eyes were opened. Their eyes were opened. Now, before I get to their eyes were opened, I want you to understand, see something today. They walked with Jesus seven miles. When was the last time you walked seven miles? That's a, it's not a short period of time. They're walking with Jesus for a while, and they didn't recognize him. Isn't it scary? To think that they could walk with Jesus and yet not recognize Him. They knew the facts. They knew the history. They knew the expectations. They knew the scriptures. They knew the power of God, but they didn't see Jesus standing right in front of them. And, and let me just be honest with you. There are some of us in church who can walk with the people of God. 
We can know the scriptures a little bit. We can know the facts. We can know the history of Jesus. We can know all the things about Jesus, but we don't recognize him. Our eyes are kept from recognizing him. But in verse 31, their eyes were opened. This word is a great little word. Their eyes were opened. It means to open thoroughly. To open thoroughly. Their eyes were opened thoroughly. It means it's the picture of a brand new baby who opens his or her eyes for the first time. It's the picture of a blind man seeing. It's that idea. For the first time ever, I'm beholding. And this is what he did to them. Their eyes weren't open through Bible study. Their eyes were open through an intimate encounter with Jesus. What happens? They come in to the house. They're at the table with him. And he took bread and he blessed it and he broke it and he gave it to them. Do you think that was familiar to them? They'd been walking with Jesus. He took bread. I think of the, the feeding of the 5,000 where Jesus took five loaves and two fish and he broke it and he, he blessed and praised God. And it was multiplied. I think of the Last Supper where Jesus is sitting with his disciples and he breaks the bread and he says, this is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And it was in the, that quiet, still, intimate moment with Jesus. Not walking down the road. Not rehashing the day. But in the quiet with Jesus that their eyes were opened. I think many of us, we see but don't see. We know about Jesus, but we've never really beheld Jesus. We've got an understanding of who He is, but we've never encountered Him. Why? Because many of us won't still ourselves in the quiet with Him. We won't get alone with Him. Let me tell you something. If this is the only time where you're still in quiet before the Lord and you're hearing the Word of the Lord, then you will unlikely, it will be unlikely for you that you encounter Jesus in a moment like this. That you won't encounter Him and the stillness of the morning when you open up the Word of God. I want to encourage you to get in the Word of God in the stillness of the morning that you might encounter Him in fresh ways. That your eyes might be opened like a brand new baby for the first time. Miss Lynn in our front office Miss Lynn's been working with Seneca Baptist Church for about 21 years. And just a few weeks ago, she had cataract surgery. And I don't, if, you, if you'd been in the office in the past, uh, uh, I don't know, five, six months, uh, Lynn would have one contact in, and then she'd be doing this with her glasses the whole time. And, and, and she, could see, she could see you better without her glasses, and she couldn't see your computer without them. Uh, and so she needed them for certain things. It's just she's constantly doing this and she's constantly got red eyes and she's you know her contacts are driving her crazy and so she finally bit the bullet and said I'm getting cataract surgery she got it we sat down in a staff meeting for the first time and she said I didn't know you people look like that <laughs> you know some of us are walking around with spiritual cataracts spiritual astigmatisms we can see but not really They keep us from seeing Jesus clearly. Some of us are just spiritually blind. 
We need God to do what only He can do. To bring us into an intimate encounter with the resurrected Jesus to help us see like a newborn baby. I mean, Jesus says, Jesus says, unless a man's born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Your eyes were open. Now, here's something I want you to see in the text. All right. In the text, we've got we've got witness or an empty tomb. All right. They say, moreover, some of our women they went to the tomb this morning. They saw a vision of angels. They didn't even believe them that it was really an angel. It was just a vision of angels. They had a vision of angels, and they they said that Jesus had come alive, and that he wasn't there in the tomb. So you have the empty tomb, and now you have witnesses of the resurrected Christ. Their eyes were open, and they recognized him right here in verse 31. They were fully acquainted with Jesus right here. Right here. And so you have an empty tomb and witnesses. These things are really important. Why is it important to have an empty tomb and witnesses? What if you just had an empty tomb and no witnesses? Well, people would say, well, somebody just stole his body. Somebody stole his body. What if you just had witnesses? Well, they've all, they've all got to be hallucinating together, telling one big grand lie. Where's the proof? Body's right here. But when you have an empty tomb and witnesses, you have proof of the resurrection. I want you to think about it. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul says, I delivered to you of first importance the gospel that I received. He says that Christ died in accordance with the Scriptures. He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. And He's appeared to us. And He says, and He appeared to 500 others, some of whom are still alive, and some have fallen asleep. Now, I want to just ask you, how easy would the resurrection be to squash if there was only an empty tomb and no witnesses of the resurrected Jesus? It'd be really easy to squash this story of Christ. Well, and if you only had witnesses and no empty tomb and the body was still there, you had no empty tomb, no proof, well, they're just telling a big lie. But when the time that the Bible was written, you could literally say, well, go ask him. He was there. He saw him. The tomb's empty. And I witnessed him. And you see those guys over there? Go talk to them. Get their, their story. You have incredible proof of the resurrection. And it would have been almost impossible for these disciples to live out a lie for 40 years at the face of incredible persecution and death without once breaking the story. So you see, you see how it's so important. The next thing I want you to see, verse 32, they said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? Man, can I just tell you, there's not many passages in the Bible that I want to be truer of me than that right there. Did not our hearts burn within us when he talked to us and when he opened up the scriptures? Don't you want your hearts to be lit ablaze for the glory of God? I want my life to be a, a, a burnt offering for the Lord. I want my heart to smolder and be a flame for Jesus. 
He said, did not our hearts burn within us? So what has the power to set our hearts aflame again? I don't know about you, but it's hard to live in that moment, isn't it? It's hard to live in a constant state of being set ablaze. So what has the power to inflame our hearts again? One person said that what set their hearts ablaze again, what captivated their affections, was an interpretation of the Scriptures that put Jesus and His finished work at the front and center. They, they were explained that Jesus interpreted to them in all the Scriptures the things concerning Himself. That word interpreted means He unfolded meaning to them that they had never seen before. And when Jesus did this grand Bible study with them, when they saw Jesus as the fulfillment and center of all of the Scriptures, their hearts were lit on fire. Their hearts burned within them. What do your hearts burn for? They're all going to burn for something. Sin, pleasure, stuff. What does your heart burn for? I want my heart to burn for Jesus. And it seems like in this passage that the Word of God and Jesus at the center of the Word of God is at the center of my life being set ablaze for Christ. What keeps, what keeps the Scripture from setting our hearts ablaze? Number one, Satan blinds us. Satan blinds us. Don't you remember? I think it's in 2 Corinthians chapter it says something like this and even if our gospel it's veiled it's veiled to those who are perishing in their case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the glory of Christ who is the image of God Satan opposes he hates it when our eyes are open to recognize Jesus in all the scriptures he hates it when our hearts are set ablaze for Him. He hates it. He is out after that. But I want you to know that Satan is not opposed to every kind of Bible reading. If you read your Bible so that you can be on a fact-finding mission or check a list, or if you read the Bible to build your case or to form your argument so that you can be proud and puffed up, Satan is not opposed to that kind of Bible reading. Satan's actually in favor of it. He'll give you over that kind of Bible reading. But if you want the kind of Bible reading that is going to seek and savor Jesus, that you're looking for Jesus from Genesis to Revelation, that you're trying to follow the scarlet thread of redemption that runs from beginning to end, if you're trying to, see the, to, to have the Scriptures cut in any place and it bleed the blood of Christ, Satan's going to oppose that kind of Bible reading. He's going to oppose it. Well, how's he going to oppose it? Let me tell you one of the most practical ways that Satan opposes your Bible reading. He's going to make you distracted and busy. Well, I don't have time for that. You don't have time not to do it. My schedule's too busy. It's never too busy for that. It's too early. Rise earlier. It's worth it. He will make you busy busyness, oh, busyness keeps so many of God's people from experiencing, seeing and savoring Jesus. I'm too busy. Friend, let me tell you, you're so busy because you don't have the first thing first. Put Jesus first, the rest of your day will go a little bit better. The second thing he'll do is he'll distract you. When was the last time you opened your Bible 
And the moment that you opened your Bible, you're like, oh, and I need to do this today, and I need to do this today, and I wonder what those people are doing. Oh, I'll just text them real fast. Well, let me just check Facebook real quick. And then 37 minutes later, you're like, oh, shoot, I got to get clothes on to go to work. What just happened? He will make you busy and he will distract you to keep you out of God's word, to keep you from seeing and savoring Jesus in such a way that your hearts are ablaze. Because if he can't change your mind about Jesus, he will change your schedule. The second thing is sin blinds us. Sin blinds us. Now Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2, he says, The natural man cannot accept the things of the Spirit of God. They're folly to him, and he's not able to understand them because they're spiritually discerned. I don't know if you've noticed this about your life, but sin places me at the center of my life. Whereas Bible reading places Jesus at the center of my life. And before I can ever see and savor Jesus at the center of all the scriptures, I've got to displace me. To place him in the center, I have to be displaced and dethroned. And that's why before I read the Bible, I must, it is necessary, you can't Bible read without first confessing sin and repenting of that sin. Turning from sin and to Jesus. You can't see the scriptures without Asking the Holy Spirit to empty you and fill you, to put you to death and to raise you to life, all on the very couch that you have your quiet time on. He will crucify you and pull you from that tomb in the moment that you say, please, Lord, I want to see you and savor you. But so many of us, we're too busy to read, we're too distracted to read, and I don't want to be displaced from the center of my own life. So sin and Satan will blind you from having your heart set ablaze, but oh my gosh, how the world needs a group of Christians whose hearts are set ablaze. That the world would, that that Jesus would light us on fire so that the world could watch us burn for His glory. And as 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 I'm closing here, I want you to see that that after their hearts were set ablaze, they saw Jesus, verse 33, and they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem. They found the eleven and those who were with them gathered together, saying, The Lord has risen indeed, and He has appeared to Simon. Then they told what happened, what had happened on the road, and how he He was known to them in the breaking of the bread. I want you to see the disciples' new understanding about the resurrected Jesus gave them a new sense of urgency in their mission. They got up immediately. They left the table immediately and and went and told the disciples. Immediately. They left the same hour. They went and left. It brought urgency to their life. Some of us, we are wasting our lives with non-urgent things, when the gospel is at stake, when eternities are at stake, when people are literally dying and going to hell, we're concerned with things of lesser urgency. I can't remember who it was. He said, most of us actually don't believe in the reality of hell. He said, if we did, we'd preach the gospel urgently. 
but our life shows that we don't. So let me bring this around. Um, we're still looking at the resurrection. And last week, Lee Strobel brought three implications of the resurrection. Number one, since Jesus has been raised from the dead, He is the unique Son of God, and His Word is authoritative. If Jesus really rose from the dead, there is no other way of salvation. None. There is no teacher like Jesus. If He really rose from the dead, His teaching, His very Word is the scriptural authority for our lives and our church's existence. His Word and His Word alone. Number two, Jesus lives so we can have a relationship with Him. He lives. He lives. Christ Jesus lives today. He walks with me and talks with me along life's narrow way. He lives. He lives. Salvation to impart. He lives so I can have a relationship with Him. There is no more perfect proof than the resurrection that Jesus offers to us forgiveness. If He only died and was not resurrected, our faith is in vain and we're still in our sins and we're going to hell. But since Christ rose, our faith is not in vain. We are not still in our sins and we are not bound for damnation but for salvation. That's good news. And it's only offered to those who have an intimate encounter with Jesus. Last thing. Jesus overcame the grave. So too will His followers. Jesus overcame the grave. So too will His followers. Why did they have so much motivation? Why did the disciples do such crazy things? Why did Paul speak the way that he spoke? Paul, I mean, just think of his life. He's a hard guy to beat. Paul, if you don't stop preaching the gospel, we're going to take all your stuff and we're going to kick you out of being a Pharisee. He said, I count everything as lost for the sake of knowing Christ. Okay, Paul, if you don't stop preaching about Jesus, we're going to beat you and abuse you and put you in prison. Great. These sufferings are nothing compared to the glory that's to be revealed. And if you put me in prison, I'll convert the jailers. Paul, if you don't stop, we're going to kill you. Fantastic. Because I'm actually torn between staying here and going there. Because to be at home in the body is to be absent from the Lord. And I don't know which one's better for me. To remain with you so I can preach the gospel or to go home and be with Jesus. It's hard to beat a guy who believes in the resurrection. Have you become hopeless in something? What's the answer? The resurrection is. The resurrection is simple proof that there's nothing in your life too big for God. I heard a story. And I'll close. I heard a story. I already said that one time, didn't I? I heard a story. You know what it means when a pastor says, in conclusion? Absolutely nothing. All right. 
heard a story of a, uh, a man and his two children and his wife, their mother, had just died. And he was trying to explain to them how the resurrection changed everything for, for them. But he didn't know how to do it. So one day they're driving down the interstate. And passing by them are these big trucks. And the sun is shining just right that every time uh, a truck would come by, just a few seconds later, a few moments later, the shadow of the truck would come by. And he said to his children, which one would you rather get run over by? The truck or its shadow? And they said, we'd rather get run over by the shadow. He said, of course. He said, that's what the resurrection does. Jesus was run over by the truck so that we would only get run over by the shadow. And if you have trusted Jesus, the resurrection, our death, is just a shadow. Because Jesus experienced the death that we deserved so that we might only experience the shadow of that death. He was raised to life on the third day so that we might be raised with Him. Death is but a shadow for the believer. What great hope the resurrection brings in all circumstances. As we close, as we pray, if you would like to meet Jesus this morning, I'd love to invite you to come and trust in Christ and Christ alone for salvation. If you'd like to come repent of your busyness or distraction and say, God, set my heart ablaze for you one more time. You can do that. Maybe you have doubt or fear or unbelief that you would like to ask for forgiveness of and bring to his feet. Say, help my unbelief. Maybe you're going through something that just seems horribly overwhelming. And you want to bring that to the foot of the empty tomb. Say, there's nothing you can't do. If you'd like to join our church this morning, you can do that too. Would you stand with me as we pray together and then sing together? Father, how little sometimes we think of the, the importance of your word. Father, but truly Christians, we can't exist apart from a daily, regular consumption of the bread of life. Your word is a light to our feet, a lamp to our path. Your word is not just how we should live. It's not a road map for life. It is the road map to Jesus it is the way that we find Jesus, we see Him, we, are sa we savor Him, we're satisfied by Him. 
It is the way that we grow in His likeness. It is the power of God to save us and sanctify us. It is our hope. It is the rock of our promises that does not change. It is the anchor for us that we cling to in stormy seas. Your Word is what Christians need. And may you please, by your Holy Spirit, grant to your church and your people a hunger for your Word. That our hearts might be set ablaze. And for the lost here today, would you lead them to Christ? For the downtrodden and the broken, would you show us the hope of an empty tomb? We pray in Christ's name. Amen.